0: We've got to like scale it back a bit, but I do feel that there's a lot of potential for growing into interaction styles and ways of doing things that will. I like to come kind of to empower more users, empower more people. You know, so that's what our fundamental goal is: is to make technology adapt to people rather than having people adapt to technology.
1: Welcome to the future of a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries markets and technology verticals. Together we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Jacob Nielsen and Mark Wallace to explore the future of UX design. Jacob, we're honored to have you on the show. I've been reading your articles and books and thought leadership for, it seems like 20 years now. So your present mind and our voice as we think about uh, the UX profession and the thought leadership around the space and the thinking and the guidance. And Mark, it's great to have you as the UX director here at Fresh and as a leader. I want to start with some backgrounds. Uh, Jacob, can you start with just telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself? I know anyone in the UX space knows you, but for everyone else can you uh, give us a bit more on your background
0: sure thanks jeff for inviting me it's great to be on, on the program here i have been doing a ux work for almost 40 years now and for the last 20 24 of those years i've been with nielsen norman group which is a company very specializing on user experience that i co-founded with don norman so that's why it's called the nielsen norman group before then i had a variety of different jobs i was a university professor I worked at Bell Communications Research, which was the telephone company research lab. And I also worked at Sun Microsystems, where I was a distinguished engineer, which is sort of the person at the company kind of responsible for thinking about usability and how to, to be honest, how to make Unix easy to use, which was not, I wasn't quite successful in that to be quite honest. But that was the, I guess, main, main reason that that they hired me. Got it.
1: I noticed that you had, I think, 79 U.S. patents. I'm assuming those are all around usability, how to make the internet easier to use.
0: They were, they are very much focused from that period when I was at Sun Microsystems because before then, user interface inventions were actually not considered to be patentable. You had to have a physical, like a mousetrap type of thing to get a patent. So I definitely... Invented or thought up many, many, many more things than those exact patents. But for most of my career, it was not patentable. And to be honest, after uh, starting our own company, we've more focused on, you know, advice as opposed to actual product development. So, patents are really just from that kind of four-year period. Otherwise, it could have been many, many more.
1: Well, I noticed you're an author of eight books. I know I, I have I have some of your uh, literature, and I've, I've definitely been reading mostly your articles uh, recently. But I thought it was cool that Bloomberg cited you among the world's most influential designers and the New York Times called you the king of usability. I think we've kind of considered you fresh, like the godfather of UX, essentially you and you and Don who, who coined the term, if I got that correctly. Yeah, that's great. Like I mentioned, I, I think I've written 50 UX principles in our history or blog posts ourselves, and we're often citing you, citing your thinking. So, so thank you for your thought leadership. Mark, over to you. Can you tell us a little bit of your background?
2: yeah interactive design for I guess a little bit over 20 years now started off in print and various sorts of production as I was sort of trying to be a musician at that time yeah I worked in uh, Los Angeles for about ten years with various agencies doing a lot of movie sites and flash uh, a lot of people might remember that phase in history which was fun I've been with fresh for about seven years doing a lot of uh, enterprise application work crossing over with our hardware teams and uh, you know getting into you know, interactions that happen with robotics and, and out and beyond that so lots of fun and exciting challenges coming up
1: awesome mark's definitely been a a kind of stalwart leader here and and always does know really amazing work mark you also do something kind of fun on the side can you tell us a little bit more about that
2: yeah i was alluding to my my early stab at trying to be a musician which uh can be difficult but we made a, a cd back in the 90s that actually went underground and then uh Turns out, it became a cult classic and was selling on eBay. I think most recently for about eighty nine dollars. So, <laughs> yeah. So somebody's making money off the ones we sold a while ago, and uh, you know, we'll see how that works out. Eventually, we'll re-release a, a, a new mastered version that uh, will actually make a little bit of money off those. Of, but uh,
1: nice. And you're still in a band today, right?
2: Yeah, still playing with uh, some of those guys and um, you know some. Metal projects and then another band uh, called Stout Pounders, which is a a Celtic rock band. So, uh, kind of like Vlogging Molly, Dropkick Murphys, things like that.
1: Nice. We'll we'll have to figure out how to weave that back in. But to start with, you've been a rock star designer uh, here on our team. Jacob, just for fun, what are some things you do for fun? You're obviously such a big thought leader. Tell us more about the fun side of your life.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm I'm afraid I don't play, play music other than on the CD player, I guess. But I do a lot of reading, to be honest. The sort of opposite genres, almost because it's kind of science fiction, about the future, and then actually about history as well. So one of the most recent books I read was actually Julius Caesar's book on the commentaries of the Gallic Wars. So that was quite interesting to read, like a more than 2000, 2000 year old book, and it's quite quite interesting actually. And then I like to you know to travel and have fun and all of that. But I don't really have so many like hobbies other than actually doing my work. So I'm sorry. About
1: that. You do amazing work, and it's clear that you're you're passionate about the space because you're you're such a clear a voice for the industry. So it's it's awesome. That's great, and I can see exactly. how maybe right ra- traveling and reading c- can tie into that. You know, and shape perspectives. I really enjoyed some of the analogies you've given. You know, in your speaking. So. I wanted to reflect on today and and a little bit of the history before we jump to the future and get your thoughts there. So Jacob, if we can start with you, this is obviously, there's been a a massive progression in this field. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of UX design before we go into the future?
2: Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I started myself in 1983 and at that point of time, I think there was about a thousand people in the world that I would say like really did did UX. Of course, there are many, many more people doing like graphic design and so forth. or programmers who were making applications and having a user interface, like as a side effect of the implementation. But that's not what we consider to be UX design. So there was very few small. Today, I think there's maybe about two million people in the world. So doing this. So just in during my career, this area has increased by a factor of two thousand, which is not two two thousand percent, but. A factor of 2000 or 200,000 percent, if you will. So huge growth. But obviously, I was not the first one. So I I personally kind of trace it back to around 1950, where Bell Labs started what I think is probably the first kind of real UX type of, of organization to design telephone systems. And their most famous design is the push-button telephone or the touch-tone telephone, as it was called. So the layout of the keyboard. And if you notice that layout is actually opposite of what the traditional layout was for uh, calculators. And there was many, many, many other designs that they considered, but then they actually did user testing and found how people could enter phone numbers faster and with fewer errors. Those are kind of the two main uh, criteria. And it was not the one that they showed it to people. Which one do you like the best? That was not the <laughs> one. And this is one of our very, very important lessons. You cannot get a good design by asking people what they like or what they prefer without using it, just by looking at it, because people just don't know. And you know, this design has been used like at least a trillion times, and it's since it was rolled out by Bell Labs. And you know, the world has saved. I think like at least ten thousand person years. So this is like getting that right has been lo- worth a lot. And of course, and you can sort of say, well, even before then, there were human factors people, and you can trace it back in hundreds of years if you really want to. People were thinking about how to design things right. But I kind of say around 1950, Bell Labs to me is the beginning of designing, you know, user interfaces with user needs as like the leading, leading guiding light. And then it's grown and grown and grown from there. And I don't think we're at all done with that growth. I think we're still only scratching the surface, actually, but but it has grown a lot during my time, for sure.
1: So what is UX design, if we'd ask that question? There's lots of terms now floating, new terminology, but I think it kind of comes back to this core I know your partner Don Norman coined the term. What do you guys consider UX design? You just talked about UX testing as an example, but how would you define it?
0: But that's an element of it. Yeah, that's an element of it. But I mean, I have to sort of have two different definitions. So that's a, one is the so-called elevator speech, which is I say we we make computers easy to use or we make technology easy to use. Uh, I think that's sort of the shortest definition. The more elaborate definition, which is really go goes back to Don Norman's original work on this, is that it is the, to totality of the interaction that the user is encountering. So it's focused, the name says it actually, it's the user experience. I mean, we have another term called user interface design, where you're designing what's on the screen. And obviously, uh, (laughs) teasing those two apart, that's like you can spend hours discussing that, it's not so important really, but it's really the perspective. So we are looking user experience UX. we're looking at it from the user's perspective. What is the user's experience? It's certainly a lot of it is driven by what's on the screen. I mean the UI design is crucial, but it can also be other things. It can, it can also be what, what preconceived notions people arrive with. So what has been been generated by, first of all, their use of a lot of other things. Now, I have something that I call uh, Jacob's Law of the Internet User Experience. And, and Jacob's Law says that users spend most of their time on other websites than <laughs> your website. And so when people get to your website, they already kind of have expectations from all these other potentially thousands of sites they've used before. And that becomes part of the user experience because they expect it to work in a certain way. And if it doesn't, even if it's a brilliant idea, it's likely will fail.
1: Thank you for that. I've been reading some of your other uh, laws. And I remember one, uh, I remember seeing a graph maybe 15 years ago about, you know, it was about testing. and the User testing being an aspect of user experience design. And I think it was the notion that after five users, you, you start to get marginal benefit of return from a testing perspective. And so, yeah, you can go test 100 users, but you might get the most outcomes from just five and then you start to get some other issues. Do you, do you still see that to hold
0: true? That is absolutely true. And it actually goes back to one of the things we say when we do usability studies. We always tell the, the test participant, the user, we are not testing you. We are testing the system. We're testing the design. And so it's because of that, you don't really need that many users because they, these users are kind of confronted with an artifact. And of course, in principle, there's millions of ways you can use that wrong, but there's some kind of main ways you can use it wrong. And you tend to find those, to so see, observe those after a few users. Now, I should say what you don't get. So we don't get any statistics. With five people, statistics are just invalid. So I cannot say if I see one out of five users doing something, I cannot say 20% of users will do that. Well, it was 20% of the five people, but honestly, anybody who's ever had a statistics course knows that the margin of error will be so big that it's irrelevant. But what I can say is this element of design trips up people. Now, depending on how expensive it's going to be to fix it, I may need more than that. I may need to know that this is something that's going to be a problem for more than 10% of the customers or more than 80% of the customers or whatever, if it's really, really expensive to fix. If it's really cheap to fix, just knowing that it's it's bad for some people, that's enough to fix it. So it depends on what you're talking about, how much more information you need. But if our goal is to, I like to think about this debugging, right? Just like a programmer, you look at your code and see if there's an error in the code. If it's wrong once, it's going to be wrong the next time as well. And the same is true here. I mean, if, if some users have trouble, guaranteed more users will have trouble. Now, exactly how many more, that I cannot say. But enough that I want to fix it for sure. It was
1: a nice uh, nice piece of work that I think uh, has imp- impacted lots of user testing in the future. You mentioned saving time with the, the telephone design. Well, that, that principle alone probably saved people a ton of time to think about the, you know, the marginal benefit of return from, from usability studies. Not, not saying that you wouldn't do more if there was more risk, et cetera, or if you wanted more statistics. You might not discover more things, but I really appreciated that. Mark, for you, you've been in this space for 20 years. What are some of the pain points or problems you see in the, the field of, of UX design today?
2: I would say a pain point I've probably encountered frequently is getting access to the right data or the right users. You're doing tests or surveys, particularly with enterprise apps. You know, sometimes it's a very select group or within a company. You know, it could be doctors, lawyers. Uh, Healthcare provides its own set of hoops you got to jump through to get real data, um, you know, with HIPAA violations. And so, yeah, you kind of have to improvise a little bit and figure out different ways to kind of extract what you think is a pretty representative set of information. But um, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind is just trying to get access to, to data that. It's actually helpful to the decisions you make.
0: Mark, you're really correct right on that. And this also shows many of these things that really stable in our field because that exact same complaint I could have made 30 years ago. There are just certain <laughs> disciplines where it's just hard to get hold of people. But that actually goes, is one more reason why qualitative research is so important because you can get, as we just were discussing, a very large amount of insight with a very small number of users. You're just gonna like squeeze that, the juice out of that some more. Uh, when it's harder to get users. And if they're easy to get users, if you're talking about like a broad consumer market, then you can kind of afford to, I would say waste, you should never waste people's time, but you you don't have to be as conscious about
1: it. That makes sense. Jacob, you mentioned uh, 2 million kind of professionals in in the UX field now. It's it's grown exponentially since you've started. Where do you see the majority of work happening today?
0: Yeah, I think if you talk about majority, then I think it's... uh, some form of web, even though not necessarily just websites, it can also be various types of applications that are cloud-based and so forth. And I would also include like mobile, because I mean to me it's actually not very different. It's all graphical user interfaces and the screen is a little bit bigger or smaller and you have it with you, you don't have it with you. Those are important points, you know, but still in the bigger scheme of things it's about the same. But it it applies to First of all, anything that has a user interface, which is a toothbrush these days, but even things that don't have necessarily interactive interface, but things like road signs or wayfinding in a hospital, you know, getting to particularly if people are, like confused or sad or and for some reason upset, you know, there's a lot of situations like that where it's not really a user interface in the sense you don't like touch it or change it. But you still have to make sense of it. And so sense making is a big part of what we do as well. But yeah, the majority sort of like more on more this than in the other buckets. I think the majority would be any type of sort of internet-oriented thing.
1: Makes sense. I think what is it like 90% of work is now done in the cloud or, or supported by the cloud. And and so if we think about where work is being done and, and this, you know, profession exploding, I could see where they're like, hey, we're making computers easier to use. The interfaces of those computers are easier to use, and there's, there's a lot of us on, on a small computer or a large computer or a, a you know a laptop computer, right? So that resonates with me. What about you know if you think about the history here and we've seen so much change in the last 20 years with, with the advancement of the cloud and mobile and, uh, and the interactive web, what are some things we've kind of learned from the past that we hopefully don't repeat in the future? You know, technology has changed us maybe for better and for worse. But any thoughts on some things? Okay, we've learned that. We, we hopefully won't repeat
0: that in the, in the future. Well, I don't know if we will. I actually think we probably will repeat we it. Will. That's a seven okay. of the sad sad lessons about the field. I feel like every time there's a new technology, the same story happens again, which is that people get very excited about this. We can do these new things. Then they do them and they fail because normal people cannot understand the designer. They have various tripping points. Uh, I mean, even the latest one I, I just was looked at was this so-called, what is it called, meta or metaverse or whatever they call it. And a lot of these ideas, I they sound good, but then the actual implementations are such that they just are to- honestly so difficult to use. And we've seen this, you know, we saw it with personal computers. We saw it with websites. We saw it with mobile. We have seen it with uh, intelligent assistants, the voice-driven assistants, and all of that—the watches. I mean, every new generation, and again, we're seeing it now again with artificial, uh, what's called virtual reality augmented reality. Those type of systems—they all have their you know, promise, but they're all done wrong the first few few attempts. They're
1: not getting it right at first, and they're probably not spending enough time in the in the UX field with doing enough UX testing to kind of inform inform the uh, all the interface and the experience.
0: Yeah, and because those people think it's great because they work on it. And because if you work on it, of course you understand it. And of course you like it. And of course you think that what it's doing is something that's, wow, so great. The normal person are one more thing. You know, and it's more difficult for the outside person as well. It's one of the big, big lessons of our entire history. It's kind of, kind of like that poster. If you work on a project, you can understand it. If you're an outsider, unless it's very polished, people are gonna fail. It's
2: kind of like that poster in the background that says you are not <laughs> <Yeah>. the user.
1: <laughs> Makes sense. So what are some of the methodologies or principles or techniques that sort of have withstood the test of time? We talked, I asked you originally about the the usability, uh, marginal benefit of return after five users, and you're like, hey, that, that's still relevant. What are some other things that have sort of withstood the test of time? I'm, I'm curious uh, uh, with of both of your thoughts.
0: Well, I mean, I think a lot of the research methodologies definitely continue to be about the same. Now, there's also changes. So, for example, that we talked about doing user testing and one thing we do a lot these days is remote user testing over the internet. That technology was not really there in the old days. We had to grab people into the lab and, and, and sit with them, which we also still do. But but not as much. So, but th- that basic idea of just watching your customer, watching your user see what they do, uh, making a prototype or markup of the design before you implement it, so you have not wasted, you know, hundreds of programmers' time for months upon months to make a feature that doesn't that users cannot understand. Those type of ideas have honestly been the same for my entire career, and I, I predict that they're going to be the same for the next 40 years as well. Uh, but I also wanted, wanted to be, you to think that I'm thinking, oh, nothing is ever changing, it's all the same, because there's honestly been a lot of progress in uh, user interfaces uh, during this, this time. I mean, if you think back, anybody who's old enough thinks back to things like DOS or Unix or the entire text-based mainframe, text-based interfaces, they were truly terrible. Then come kind of the PC interfaces were just terrible. They were not like as bad. They were better. Mm-hmm. And then the early websites were in fact bad. But then kind of even just the middle ground of websites have already started to be, be better. And the modern ones, the better ones anyway, are getting to be kind of like pretty good. And the same is true for mobile. Like the first mobile apps were really bad. You had this fat, fat finger problem you couldn't touch anything and they've sort of started to understand that and making them better so i think that if and this is also echoed by the way in the masses of people using computers which used to be relatively few people and now in at least rich countries it's it's a very large percentage of the population so that is only possible because the computers have become much easier to use I and mean, they're not what i want them to be you know but i'm very critical but they're much better than they used to be
1: that makes sense. Mark, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I echo a lot of that. I think some things that will change a little bit about getting some of that user feedback as things becoming more physical with virtual reality and how do you capture that. It has been nice, especially the last few years, being able to still conduct interviews and some testing remotely. But yeah, nothing, nothing beats getting in person and really watching a person and how they act with you know, different things that happen in the environment around them that you can't really capture in this you know, two-dimensional uh, help the cameras capturing everything that's going on around that person. Um so yeah, for certain things it's just you know always better to see them in person.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. Let's shift to the future a little bit. Jacob, you have done this sort of, you know, hundred year span timeframe that I've talked about before, a hundred year view on UX that starts in nineteen fifty and goes to, to twenty fifty. What's in store for the UX field in the you know the next thirty years, if roughly thirty years, you know
0: 2050. Tell us more about what you predict for the future. Well, yeah, I predict enormous additional growth. So I always said that in my time, it's grown by a factor of 2,000. So in that sense, the the factor is smaller because I'm predicting another growth of a factor of 50 from 2 million to 100 million people. But of course, in terms of absolute numbers, this is like 98 million more people. So that's a huge growth. And the reason I do that is I really feel that what we are doing is becoming more and more core part of the world economy. And uh, in the old days, you know, it was a matter of like making farming better, you know, and I'm sure this will still happen. It's just not my area, but I'm sure farming will still get better. But, uh, or mining or assembly line, making an automobile, those type of things. They've always been important. They will continue to be important. But relatively speaking, the knowledge work, you know, the intellectual work, the information oriented things, I mean, Various people say we're in the knowledge economy, information economy, or whatever. But I really feel we are, and not just the economy in terms of like producing, but also the economy in terms of consuming, because there's only like so much bread you can eat, or so many you know steaks you can eat, or whatever. Like, so as farming gets better and better, we can't eat more anyway. And the same is true for how many cars do you want, and how many this or that physical thing do you want. But we can always want things to be more pleasant, more engaging, uh, easier. So that, that's why I think a lot of the growth is happening now and, and even more so in the future. And also, this is a global phenomenon as well. So uh, we have to remember there's still a lot of countries in the world that are more like middle of the road or even poor. And those are going to get richer and richer and richer. And uh, the countries that are now middle. In 30 years, they'll be rich. And the countries that are now poor will in 30 years hopefully be, be no middle class. So we're ex- I'm expecting like a lot, lot more uh, affluent people who will really be very demanding in terms of quality. And so how do we deliver quality? I mean, we do it by our, this UX work. And, and that's why I'm thinking that there's a need for dramatically more people doing this than we have now. That makes sense. So
1: how do we see... The UX field sort of evolving with all of these new technologies that are coming out. Some of which don't even have screens. So you don't have that interface. That different type of interface, I guess. But how do you see the kind of UX field evolving with all this new innovation that's going to be, be, going to be coming in the next twenty years? So yes, more designers. But do we think that the practices, the methods uh, need to change, or the field needs to change at all with with all this new tech?
0: I mean, I think you're right that there will be. We will divorced ourselves more from the screen. I mean, the, the graphical user interface was honestly one of the really big advances in usability. It's, it's so much easier to deal with things so we can see them rather than have to remember them. This is actually one of our human factors principles is that human memory is really <laughs> weak. And so if you can show things to people so they don't have to remember them, this is vastly an improvement in usability. But that said, we can't always sit in front of a big computer screen, right? And so... Uh, There's a lot of things that are becoming more interactive, becoming more computerized. So the user interface will more be around us. It'll more be the world that's a user interface as opposed to just your computer screen. And I, I still honestly believe in the same fundamental methods of watching users behave and act in that world. But yeah, the actual design principles will certainly have to be very different because we cannot use these principles saying, well... No, make a search box in the upper right part of the screen. A lot of those guidelines we have that are great guidelines, but apply to a certain certain representation of the interaction.
1: It's been interesting to watch voice AI how how rapidly that's evolved. You, know, you have three billion devices with voice AI, and that being that that being a, a common way for us to interface with information today, that's been fascinating. I think for for the UX field as an example, but all voice our eyes you know being a key thing with sort of the future of the the AR VR world you know i just was t- trying out one of our clients is OVR it's a it's a smell it's a a smell factor for the augmented reality virtual reality devices as well and so we're like tapping into these different senses and it seems like the human factors aspect of UX might become even more important for the future given that we might not have you know all the all the interfaces
0: I think you're right because one of the key things about the graphical user interface is it can show you options. So like a menu is one of the classic things in a in a graphical user interface. And so whereas for a lot of these other interfaces, you have to basically be right. I mean, you have to just like show, not show people, but let's say like people smell or hear or whatever, a much, much smaller number of things. Uh, because you don't have that. uh, The visual scanning is very, very powerful, and that's one of the reasons the menus work. But yeah, a menu that's... I mean, people hate these phone trees, like for this, press one, for that, press two, and uh, for such and such, press 25 or whatever. I mean, they are just insufferable to use because scanning doesn't apply to an auditory interface and and even less so to a smell interface. And so so you're right. We have to be much more accurate in our design, and and so... um, the Graphic User Interface has saved us in many ways from our inability to be perfect designers. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who's a perfect designer in the world, right? But but we'll have to become more perfect when we have the, these other types of interaction channels. Yeah.
1: One of the things we've been talking over here at Fresh is about Using a combination of methods because it can be really efficient, for example, for voice, for search, and for getting the information in, but it's not super efficient for getting information out. And so, like, from we have a robotics platform called Harmony, and we've been discussing well, it's efficient to get information in if you're, let's say, navigating a robot somewhere, but to get to see what's happening, if that's if you're trying to hear back from audio. You know, you could scan in seconds what it could take a minute to tell you, right? And so that sort of hybrid of thinking about like when to use different experiences and when to design with different inputs, I think is going to be more important for the future. Mark, what are your thoughts on how things need to evolve, or or what are some of the game changer things you you see for the future of, of UX
2: design? Yeah, I mean, just that what you were just talking about, bringing in the the senses of smell, things starting to you know traditionally you were just eyes and keyboards and track paths but now you know it's not just that we're bringing in smell you, you have hearing of ar vr devices now you're talking about physical gestures and that sort of brings in you know the factor the human factor of being aware of you know more physical accessibility issues beyond like the plethora of vision problems that a lot of people have so yeah i think uh, it just kind of expands into further understanding you know the human restrictions and, and when to uh, account for that in, in design
1: this is a question I had for you, Jacob. Like, do you think the next generation of tech advancements will make the future, you know, the future of computing more natural, or do you think we're going to be, you know, just more distracted, essentially, with, with uh, you know, all these different devices and, and, and ways to interact with you know, computers that are, you know, in IoT devices, but mobile and screens that are everywhere. What are your thoughts on like the you know, making the the experience with computers more natural? How does the new tech sort of
0: enable that well i and I feel that like that what you're pointing out is is definitely a risk that it just becomes more distracting, more overwhelming, more like you've been bombarded at all on all channels and it's very similar to you know you are at uh, if you're in like the, not the physical reality world, but you're going to some place like Times Square or any other like major major downs downtown you know, place in the big city, and all these things are flashing at you and the taxes are coming and and you are at dire risk of your life if you step one, mis- misstep once, right? There's a ex- definitely risk of that. And so I think attention management is going to be a really big, big concern. And we, we have to remember people are very limited in how much they can take in. But at the same time, I also believe that there's a lot of potential for making it more natural. And we just basically know that most humans are not great at dealing with abstract information and... and this is again this like you are not the user kind of points because I think most people who are watching this episode are probably in the very high end of the population in terms of cognitive skills and abstract thinking and all those type of things. So we may not realize how hard it is for the majority of people, but there's been like very thorough studies of these things. And it uh, turns out that it's very, very limited percent of the population who can actually capable to like really advanced use of computers with the kind of current type of computers. And one really big study that was done by OECD was uh, said 5% of the population average over the OECD. And then there are some countries like Singapore and Japan was 8%. And, you know, that's nice bragging rights for them. But honestly, whether it's five or eight, you do the opposite math, right? This says that on average it's 95% and in Japan and Singapore it's 98, 92%. It doesn't even really matter whether it's one or the other. In any case, it's more than 90% of the population cannot do this. I mean, they can do simple things, which is why e-commerce works. If you see something you want, you can click to buy it or you can scroll through a newsfeed and simple, simple things people can do, but complicated things they cannot do. And it's just because that's not the way, I mean, and it's not because... 90% or 92% or 95% of people are incapable of functioning. I mean, clearly, we you, you can see this. I mean, so it's the case that the vast majority of people are able to do, drive a car, go shopping in the supermarket, deal with their girlfriend, I mean, whatever things. But I mean, all those type of, of everyday activities, most, not everybody, but most people can, in fact, do them. Uh, so there's clearly a disconnect here. And so... Humans are evolved to live in that that physical world and understand a certain way of doing things, but only to a certain extent. I mean, again, not if there's thousands of people banging things at us all the whole time, of blinking things and behind us and besides us. So we've got to like scale it back a bit, but I do feel that there's a lot of potential for growing into interaction styles and ways of doing things that will... I like to come say, empower more users, empower more people. you know so that's what our fundamental goal is is to make technology adapt to people rather than having people adapt to technology.
1: makes sense. I really like this that stat of like, okay, if humans are only doing ninety two to nine ninety ninety two to ninety five percent aren't doing really complex work with computers, that's a great promise for truly making computers easier to use, kind of doing more of the advanced complex work, if we can adapt them to the humans, then they can do even more advanced complex work as we continue to evolve, right? And, th- and that being sort of the role of, yes, technology will get more automated, but we, as it does, it hopefully with good UX design, right? It gets easier to kind of manipulate and utilize and do more advanced functions. And so it, we carry that need forward with us. That's awesome. Mark, what are your thoughts? How do you see the the UX design field evolving? And how does that relate to kind of making things easier for humans?
2: Yeah, I I think it is getting out there more and, and watching people. I think that, that assumption that, you know, people are just going to get this because I get it is, um, you still see it all the time, actually. And it's always fun to kind of show people a user test video and uh, reveal that, you know, it's not as easy as you thought it was. And uh, here's some places where we should probably focus some fixes. So, you know, as far as evolving, I think it's just, you know, it's going to be some different sorts of test methods to capture, you know, how struggles with VR, um, you know, thing, thing the new technology that comes out. We're going to have to adapt our testing methods to capture the, the, the big picture. Yeah, I just, I mean, it, it's a lot of the same, but, but some shifts to uh, adapt to the new technology that's coming out
1: hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the trends we've been seeing recently has been this, just this decentralization of data, you know, been the Web3, blockchain, all that sort of stuff. Jacob, do you see that impacting the UX design field or is that just more kind of behind the scenes?
0: I mean, to a great extent, it's behind the scenes, but it does also raise some additional issues. Like, for example, do people know where things are? Uh, I would say mostly probably not do they have to know where things are hopefully not i would say because it's, it's too difficult but those are definitely issues we wouldn't didn't have in the past i mean if you had a before the internet if you had a pc you knew all your data was on your own local local drive or your your floppy disk even if you go back far enough so it was easier to understand what was going on and the more steps and layers you have the harder it becomes. And this is a particular problem when anything goes wrong because it's almost impossible, even for somebody who knows, like I, I know a lot about computers, actually. You know? So I, it's very hard for me to understand uh, what's wrong when something breaks. As long as it all works fine, no problem. But so the ideal there is actually that things break less often. And so uh, this is a great example of how something that you would consider to be like truly back-end, like the exact code and stuff like that, impacts user experience because when there are bugs, when things go wrong, they go down, they break. Endless confusion involved. And people start then doing things to overcome the problem, but they will often be wrong things because they don't understand what went wrong. And uh, that is really terrible. So having more stable, solid technology that doesn't break as often uh, would be a vast improvement in user experience, actually, even though it's not a a design. An in interface design, the end this engineering design problem, but but that, and, and of course all the security issues and and the endless things compound to make things more complicated, and the impact they have a bigger impact than just that one isolated spot in its own right. Like when you can't log in, you know that snowballs those type of issues. So there's a lot of things that that impact total user experience, which is what we want to optimize.
1: That's interesting to think about how, you know, back-end can reinforce obviously the front-end experience or, you know, something going down could could damage trust, which may be a critical aspect of using something. That's helpful. As we think about, you know, I mentioned technology kind of has a a life of its own, you know, and I think UX has, has done a great job helping us focus on the users, which, you know, impacts humans and impacts humanity. What are some challenges that we need to be working on as we think about the future to solve for, for humanity and not just users? And I think this recent focus on like inclusive design has, has had us thinking a little bit broader than just you know the, the traditional like user personas and, and user testing and started to think about like, oh, humanity is getting impacted here. What are some thoughts on, uh, again, the, the challenges we need to be working on from a humanity perspective?
0: Well, there are many. I also don't think we should over-exaggerate our own role. I mean, there's some certain things that we probably can't really deal with like, like let say risk of world war three is <laughs> an example. It's like, it's definitely something I worry about. It's becoming
1: not. a real present reality, potential reality that people are talking about, right?
0: Yeah, well now hopefully people are watching this in five years and the problem will gone away, but actually not, right? There's still gonna be some other problems, right? But yeah, I don't think we should expect that we can solve everything, but that said, there are certainly things that we we can either solve or at least help improve, right? And. Uh, one thing is a little bit of a traditional human factors problem, but I think it's the aging society is, is, I think it's a really big one because that's true in, in almost all countries that bigger and bigger percentage of the population are getting older and older. And I feel like there's actually two aspects to that. And one is, is really just the traditional uh, usability issues of just like using bigger fonts and simpler workflows and stuff such that old people can, can have an easy time using those designs. And that's honestly, that's a disgrace that's not already done because we know how to do that. Uh, and then there's a the second one, which I think is more complicated and difficult, which is how to use technology to overcome the you know, degradation of the brain by, by, by aging. And a simple example of that is the the memory problem. So anybody who has not forgotten where they left their car keys, there's two reasons. Either they don't own a car or they're not 50 years old yet. You know, Otherwise, memory is just known. Memory just kind of degrades a bit. But I think computers have perfect memory. So we should have ways of com- have this human-computer symbiosis of having the computer take over some of that responsibility, have the humans do more of the things that that they are good at. I mean, there's honestly been not that much good work done on personal information management uh, ever since the web came out. The web really changed our focus a lot to being just put out more information uh, as opposed to really understanding and, and, and uh, uh, dealing with our own information. So that has been Progress in that has not been as strong. There was very much more interesting work kind of done in the late 80s than has been done more recently. So that is just one example, but there's a lot of other things as well. So I think that we can make, you know, the aging population still be feel feel active and, and do things because, you know, a lot of the physical health problems are not going away. I mean, they are always sick, sick people, which is another th- question. But, but generally speaking, Older people tend to be much more fresh now than they were in the past, but they're still old. I mean, they're still aging. And so they, we still need to have the computer be better able to, to sort of magnify them and amplify them and, and, and make them more creative and so forth. So that, I feel, is like a really big, big challenge that it's not, as far as I can see, not being done a lot. I mean, most design kind of interest is in how to design for young people, not how to design for old people right mark
1: what are your thoughts about you know challenges that that we need to be working on and also you know what are some of the big topics that that we could cover from from a that that can make the world a better place
2: yeah i think actually i was watching a video i think it was one of yours jacob where you talked about that population shift where there's just going to be a lot more older people um as opposed to more younger people, which um, it's kind of traditionally been the, the pattern. So I think that that definitely comes to mind in, in you know, watching how they interact with things. You have a, a different population now that, you know, is becoming old that has grown up with computers, whereas people like my parents did not. Um, they've adapted over time. So I think it's just interesting to watch how, you know, as, you know, Gen Xers or, Whatever they're calling us now, um, (laughs) get older. Are they just completely out of the loop on the new technology that's coming up? Or do they kind of, are they more, do they have a greater ability to adapt to new technologies that come out? And how do you design for people that, you know, like you say, just, you know, the memory starts to go a little bit in in eyesight and things like that. So just being cognizant of not forgetting those people and, and making sure, you know, if they're even remotely going to be part of your user set, then you really need to to work their their needs in there.
1: Yeah. Any other thoughts, you know, from a macro perspective about how, you know, we can be more intentional for the future, given all we've learned from the past. Jacob, thoughts from you?
0: Well, I mean, mainly I'm a very optimistic, positive person, but the one, one of the things that has sort of been disappointing to me, I guess, is a lot of sort of social media for the last 10 years or something. So that could be one area one would hope one could have learned from from the past. And I'm sure, the, I mean, there's a lot of great, uh, both actual benefits and also perceived or hoped for benefits, but they've also been overshadowed by various downsides as well. And so that would be one area I think that there would be potential for learning from, le- learning from the past and doing better next time. Yeah,
1: it's definitely, I think we've become more divisive. As a result of some of the media and some of the technology, and so how do we how do we bring people together more and think about that more intentionally? That's definitely on our minds. Let's move into just a couple of closing questions. Jacob, what what advice would you give for someone interested in in the UX field? It's obviously you mentioned it's going to be a growing field, but what advice would you give for someone that hey, this sounds interesting, I'd like to get involved?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you have to be interested in all of that. But if you are, I think it's going to be a great career. And um, the only thing to do is to get get going, get into it, you know, as fast as possible, because this is an area where you mainly uh, learn from experience. I mean, there's absolutely some theory and it's worthwhile. Reading some books, you mentioned I've written many books, and then taking some courses, all those type of things, all very good. I think if you just try to do it on yourself, on your own, you're going to go and make all the mistakes that I made 40 years ago. And why do that, you know, so learn from what's already known. But the truth is that it's not that much. I mean, it's not that much theory. It's good to know. You know, some psychology, some research methods and some design you know, principles and whatever. But mainly it's a matter of actually doing it and then learning from those projects and doing better next time. And so my, my main advice is just get going as fast as possible. And it's, of course, the exact advice will depend on the person's circumstances. Like I said, somebody's like in high school. In that case, maybe you could advise that they try to get an undergraduate degree, not a graduate degree, undergraduate degree in UX and then go and get a job. Are they already in the job market? In that case, what I actually usually say is, look around where you are right now and see if you can like, twist your current job to become a UX job and just take on some of the low hanging fruit because particularly in a company that does not do a lot of UX work, there's gonna be a lot of terribly designed internal applications. That very little work can make them vastly better and uh, which will be very visible to management, which will then hopefully now make them give you more resources to the next project and so forth. So I think if you're in this place already, try to see if you can make it work where you already are. But yeah, if you're completely new, then I, I mean, what I did, but this is back in the 1970s. This is so long ago. I mean, I did all these things like getting a PhD, whatever. But that's honestly, uh, it's, it's not worthless, but it takes too much time. It's better to get
2: going faster.
1: Mark, what are your thoughts? on uh, some, For someone that's interested in this UX field, uh, you've been in it for a while.
2: Yeah. Get exposed to as many things as possible. I mean, not just education, but getting out there. Uh, if you have opportunities to travel, do it expose yourself to as many cultures as possible. I think just understanding more humans, the better, uh, more perspectives. I know throughout my life, I've, I've had opportunities here and there. And, and, and you don't realize it until you go through it, that how that can impact you and your perceptions on, you know, not everybody sees things the same. And just understanding that principle alone is, uh, can be powerful as you approach your design. Jacob, for you,
1: any other closing thoughts as we think about the, the future of UX design?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's honestly will be, <laughs> will be glorious. There's always resistance as well. And what I feel is like, don't let that make get you down, you know, like if you're a place where there's resistance, so push them harder. And if you keep pushing and it still doesn't work, then maybe get another job, but that should be the, the last, last choice. I mean, that, that, don't let, because if you look at the bigger history, and again, don't look at the history. History history is not from one week to the next, you know, or one month to the next. And so you have a brilliant idea and it's going to be shut down, or you do user testing and you discover, like, a major thing that needs to be fixed, and engineering manager says, we don't have time, we're going to ship next week. Yeah, so there will be those type of setbacks. They just happen. But if you look at it in a longer period of time, over years, many years, we are up, 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 and we are getting more respect. We're getting more budgets. A maturity in organizations are going up. It's becoming more international. The actual, the ultimate point is the actual quality of the user interfaces that is shipping is going up. All those things are getting better and better and better. And then there's small setbacks, and but don't focus on the setbacks. Focus on the bigger picture, and then it's just really great. Awesome.
1: Thanks so much for being here on the show, both of you, and for your insights, your wisdom, your experience. Huge gratitude for that and uh, for joining us today and for you know just sharing thoughts on where we're going and how we can continue to impact that with intent. Grateful.
0: Yeah, well, thanks, Jeff and Mark. It was a great discussion. Thank you.
1: The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for the future of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google podcast, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.